Miss Debbie. What a joy it is to have uh, at least one Sunday a month have the, the older kids join in with us. We are glad that you are here. There is bingo to play, um, which might help uh, focus, help you focus on this sermon this morning. Uh, any adults that need bingo, that's fine too. <laughs> Go ahead and grab a crayon and a bingo card and that'd be just fine. If First Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 15 was read in the public square, it would seem absolutely ridiculous. It's laughable to most, these verses. However, to the degree that we in the church find this text laughable, it will only serve to reveal how we are more influenced by the world than we are by the word of God. These are some tough verses. In fact, I found myself almost dreading the preaching moment this week uh, because these verses are so difficult. Uh, About 10 days ago, Megan asked me if there was a song that might go along with my sermon for this Sunday, and I chuckled. And she asked, she asked, why? What's your sermon about? So I grabbed the nearest Bible, and I read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And Megan smiled, and she said, well, there, there might be a song. And I, I just interrupted her, and I said, no, love, there, there really isn't a song that goes along with these verses. There's not. I can admit that these are difficult verses. Some of you have read them ahead of time and called me and told me that you're praying for me this morning. Um, Some of you said, I don't know that I'll be there on Sunday because this is bound to be awkward. And, And it is. Personally, I would not choose to preach this passage. Uh, If I wasn't committed to preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, if I didn't believe that consecutive exposition of the Bible was how the Lord intended for us to hear the Bible and preach the Bible, I would never choose to preach these verses. Not if I had a hundred years to preach. But here we are. Ritual Christian Church is committed to expository preaching, to preaching through one book of the Bible at a time. After we finish this book, we will go to another book. Because God's word, the Bible, is sufficient. We will never plumb the depths of its riches. We will never exhaust its power. We will never master its teaching. We will never advance from the Bible to something else or to something better. There is nothing better, not for the church and not for the people of God. And make no mistake, those who are not part of God's people need the Bible. Nothing else can tell them what they need to hear. God's word is useful, every part of it, even these verses. And God's word alone is our guide. And this is crucial, especially for today. God's word alone is our guide. Not culture, not preference. We don't bend the Bible to suit us. We bend ourselves to suit what the Bible has to say to us. We, we bend ourselves to meet what the Bible requires of us. If I disagree with something the Bible says, guess which one of us is wrong? It's me. The inspired, inerrant, infallible, dependable word of God is not, cannot be wrong. Only our uninspired, errant, fallible, undependable understanding of it is wrong. What we do with this text says as much about our doctrine of the Bible as it does about our hearts. 
This passage of scripture answers a couple of questions for us. Number one, who does what in the church? Number two, why? We need to remember as we approach this text that it's not divorced from what comes before it or what comes after it. It's all one letter from Paul to Timothy and the churches. There's a flow to it. Ideally, we would be able to read all of this in one setting and preach all of this in one setting, but that would take days, and so we break it up into little chunks. But we have to remember it all goes together. Paul is writing to Timothy here in chapter 2 about the primacy of public worship, how important public worship is, and about the scope of public worship. He writes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the the text of last week's sermon, about the prayer and the proclamation of the church in light of God's desire for everyone to be saved and Jesus' death for everyone. And that discussion, verses 1 through 7, naturally leads to verses 8 through 15 about who does what and why. In 1 Timothy 3, what we'll look at next week, Paul writes about the qualifications of elders and of deacons, which follows the discussion here about who does what and why. Paul talks about who does what and why, and then talks about the leadership of the local church. This passage of scripture has a textual home. That is, it belongs right here where it's at in the Bible, in this part of 1 Timothy. So we have to read and understand what's around it. It has a textual home, and it has a cultural home. This was written in a specific place, in a specific time. But we must admit that this was written in a time and a place not altogether different from our own. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, says the great Missourian Mark Twain. So history may not look exactly like it did then. Rich Hill, Missouri in uh, 21st century America doesn't look exactly like Ephesus in 1st century Asia. But there's some very real similarities. In the early church and in every era of the church, there have been men who are divisive and women who are distracting. (laughs) Even, even writing that sentence this week made me very uncomfortable. Did he really just say women are distracting? No. No, he didn't. He said there have been men who are divisive, meaning there's some men who are divisive. And I said there, are, there have been women who are distracting, meaning there have been some women in history who have been distracting. This was the issue, divisive men distracting women. This was the issue in Paul's day. There were some of each, some men who were being divisive, some women who were being distracting. <laughs> and I can't imagine anyone, as, as Paul writes this letter and Timothy reads it before the church, I can't imagine anyone in that day took it any better than you're going to take this this morning. But we have to talk about this stuff because the local church is made up of men and women. Yeah, it's not groundbreaking, this thought, but it's true. The church is made up of men and women. And so Paul addresses, Paul engages Timothy's congregation according to gender groups. Based on what Paul has said, by the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in the previous verses, about the church members' need to pray and their need to proclaim the gospel, we read the initial instruction given to the men of the church. 1 Timothy 2 Look at verse 8. This is what he says just to the men. He says, therefore, because of what he's just said, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger 
or disputing. Men in the church are to be holy, not divisive. Be holy, not divisive. The fact that Paul has to add the without anger or disputing to the end of the call for men everywhere to pray is evidence of the divisiveness present in that day. There were men in Timothy's church who were apparently not leading in prayer at all or praying in the church while they were fighting with someone else in the church. These three are hindrances to prayer, sin, anger, and quarreling. When those three are present, prayer will diminish or it will disappear. Those who come before the Lord must do so with clean hands and a pure heart. It's completely inappropriate for men who are supposed to be leading the way at home and in the church to approach the Lord in prayer if sin is present and or if they're harboring resentment or anger toward someone else. If you have a problem, if you have a problem with another person, if you have issues with a brother or sister in the gathering, you need to deal with that before you approach the Lord. It's just as Jesus taught us. He said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, Paul is telling the men of the church, don't pray before God when you're not right with your brother or sister. That's coming before the Lord with unclean hands, impure hearts. What the men in the church must not do is think that we can just rush into worship, or that we can bypass, skirt around our need to honestly confess our sin before God. A right heart and a right heart attitude is crucial for prayer and for God-honoring worship in the church. We have to come before the Lord with clean hands, men, pure hearts, men. Before we presume to lead the church or lead our families, we have to be right with God. Whether or not we lift up holy hands in prayer is, is a matter of cultural expression. In Paul's day, the time of worship was attended standing up. Not just for a song here or there, or a scripture reading here or there. All of you would be standing this whole time, and even longer, because they went to church for hours and they, they didn't seem to complain about how often we stood up or how long we had to sit and listen to that boring preacher. They, just, they stood for all of it. So in prayer, to, to differentiate the normal posture in worship, in prayer, they would lift up their hands in order to symbolize submission and the thought of receiving from God everything that we have. But more important than our physical posture is our heart's posture before the Lord. Our purity, our motivation. Men, I'm speaking to you, speaking to me. We cannot be divisive. We must be holy, set apart to the Lord and to his service, leading for the glory of God and for the joy of his people. This is our high calling. After he addresses the men, Paul turns his attention to the women who had become a distraction in the church. Look at verse 9. I also want the women 
to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. From his instructions here in verse 9, we can tell what Paul is talking about. I heard someone ask in light of this, said, well, then, do we, do we need to post security guards at all the entrance to the church to check for braided hair and expensive jewelry? It's probably a bit extreme. and it, Well, it's absolutely <laughs> too extreme. But here's the underwriting principle. Women are to be holy, not distracting. Women are to be holy not distracting. Like many cities in the ancient Near East, and like many places today, Ephesus was chock full of sexual immorality. Just bursting at the seams with sexually immoral behavior. It was common in that day for women to dress in a way that would attract attention, sometimes even dressing seductively on purpose. That's what was going on in that culture. Very different from today. Very different. We, nothing like that ever happens. So Paul is given, giving the women at the church in Ephesus, he's giving them a, a different model to follow. A better model. A Christian model. Don't dress and behave just like the other women in Ephesus. Dress differently. Dress modestly. I want women, Paul says, I want the women to dress modestly. Or, as I learned in Christian college, modest is hottest. Right? You ever heard that? Modest is hottest. No? No? Okay. That was the only joke I have. If you don't laugh at that, there's going to be no laughs for the... That was it. I, I gave you that. That was a... All right. That's your choice. It's fine. Just like the women in Ephesus, Christian women today should, in how they dress, do so with a different motivation than the women of the world. And I know, I know that I am on very thin ice here. Start telling anyone what to do with their body. Start telling anyone what to do, period, what they should or shouldn't do. Start telling women that what they should wear and what they should not wear, you're asking for it, aren't you? I know the prevailing wisdom of the world is I can do what I want, and if it bothers you or offends you, too bad. If what I'm wearing causes you to stumble or to lust, that's not my problem. It's yours. And to some degree, that's true. But the countercultural wisdom of the church is honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in love. That's our call. Our call is to work really hard to honor the other, to defer to the other person, to do what's best for them, not what's best for me. What's fashionable in the world isn't always fashionable for the Christian if its purpose is to draw attention to physical beauty or to worldly wealth. Clothing, dress, should be modest. To take some of the heat off of me, let me quote another pastor. And you can be mad with him if you can find him. He's somewhere in Washington, D.C. Good luck. We are extremely liberal, says Platt. We are extremely liberal when it comes to what women wear. Skin-tight clothes, low necklines, high hemlines, and short shorts are the norm. This is the kind of clothing that falls far short of the biblical idea of modesty. 
The way some women in Ephesus were dressing, the way some women in 21st century America dress, is at best a distraction from honoring God, and at worst, an attempt to seduce men in the church to sin. End quote. Drawing attention to physical beauty is not proper motivation for the Christian. Neither is drawing attention to worldly wealth. The point in verse 9 Uh, in mentioning the hairstyles, the gold, the pearls, the expensive clothes, is that these things were highlighting the distinction between the wealthy and the poor in the early church. The desire of a Christian woman, the Christian woman, is not to distract, not to draw attention, but to clothe herself with good deeds. Not to draw attention to herself, but to point everyone to the one that she worships. And this is far more important. Verse 10 says this, Don't dress yourself this way, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. There's appropriate, and there's inappropriate, and the standard is the word of God, not what's popular or commonplace in the world. Paul speaks to the men, and then he gives them some instruction. Then he turns his attention to women and gives them some instruction. And now he speaks to the whole congregation, and he tells them that there are distinctive roles in the church. There are distinctive roles in the church. These next verses answer the who and the what and the why. Who does what and why, we might ask. We might even entitle the sermon, Who Does What and Why. If you thought the last couple of verses were a little bit awkward, Uh, Just listen to this, starting in verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. (laughs) Oh, man, the look on your faces. All right, so we'll just, we'll get the hardest of these verses out of the way because there's like 47 interpretations on verse 15. No one has any idea what to do with verse 15. We just don't, but we're going to take a stab at it. In context, it seems to be saying that as a woman fulfills her God-given role, she is saved. Not from her sins, not, not a way to earn her salvation, but she's saved, that is, she's sanctified as she glorifies God in her unique role and responsibility that he has entrusted to her. Okay, that's, that's my best take. Again, Go home and read. There's like 47, I kid you not, at least 47 different interpretations here. So that's verse 15. No one really has any idea what to do with it. I think in context, that kind of makes sense, that as as the woman fulfills her God-given role that's entrusted to her, that that's what the Lord desires. But these other verses, verses 11 through 14, are so incredibly upside down in our day, so incredibly countercultural, even potentially offensive to us here this morning, that we need the Lord to give us extra grace as we read. 
as we listen, as we preach these verses. What we, mu- what we must not do, tempted though we might be, is to ignore these verses as some outdated, only in Ephesus, doesn't apply to us here today, insignificant part of the Bible. We cannot do that. I have been a part of theologically conservative, Bible-believing churches all of my life. And some of the most significant, godly, Bible-saturated influences in the churches I've been a part of have been women. Some of the, some of the biggest influences in my life are women. And I don't say that and because I'm scared of her. That's not why I say it. I say that because she knows her stuff and she loves the Lord. Joanne Omer, Kathy Schmidt, Betty Bowers, Marianne Cho, Betty Gouin, Alice Shandy, Lisa Cross, Angela Reimers, just to name a few. Not even to get started with the women in this congregation. These faithful women, and many more besides, have left an indelible imprint on my life. As such, years ago, uh, right out of college, when I interviewed at a church and they had women as elders, uh, the, the search committee asked me, Barrett, what do you think about women as elders personally? Just personally. And personally, if all that mattered was my experience and my preference, I don't see a problem with it. I think there are some women who have all the gifts necessary to teach and to lead the church. There are women sitting before me in this room this morning who have more knowledge and gifting in this area than I do. And that's no lie. I can understand why it rubs people the wrong way. When Paul says that women need to be quiet and submissive, that they shouldn't teach or exercise authority over men, I get the bristling, uncomfortable nature of this because I feel it myself. I do. I see why people are quick to dismiss this as an outdated cultural mandate that doesn't apply today. I wish it was as easy as skipping over these verses or pulling a a Thomas Jefferson and just cutting this section out of the Bible, which is what he did, by the way. Um, made his own Bible because he he took out what he didn't like. And some of us do that in practice, don't we? We ignore what we don't like, and that's another sermon. I wish it was as easy as just skipping this, but it's, it's not. Now, if it makes you feel any better, in verses 11 and 12, some Bibles say that the women should learn in silence and then be silent. The word used there in verse 11 and 12, which some, verse, some versions translate silence or silent, is the same word used in verse 2. 1 Timothy 2.2 2 says this. 1 Timothy 2.2 2 says, for kings, uh, Pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Quiet lives. Same word. Verse 2 as verse 11 and 12. Same word, translated as quiet. The point is not that women must be completely silent in the churches any more than we would want to live completely silent, wordless lives. That's not the goal. And why some translators translate it as silent and silence is beyond me. Because it's the same word. They call it quiet in verse 2 and then they say silent. So as an aside, maybe that makes you feel better. Uh, a little sugar on this uh, really tart, <laughs> bitter-tasting whatever this is. Here's the bottom line. In the church, who does what and why matters. 
It's not randomly decided. It's not that we're stuck in the past, tied to some cultural rule from a couple thousand years ago. That's not it at all. It goes back way further than that. There are distinctive roles in the church reflective of the created order. We're not merely tied to what Paul taught Timothy. We're not merely grouped in with the church at Ephesus. We're not a bunch of misogynistic women-hating Neanderthals. We're not some backwater hicks who are so entrenched in an old-timey way of doing things that we refuse to be progressive. What we strive to be is a people who submit to the Word of God and who submit to the Creator, who created us with particular roles in mind. Over the years... I have had a really hard time understanding the why behind Paul's prohibition. I wasn't entirely settled in my own mind as to why Paul would say what he does. A woman should learn in quietness, in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. This raises a lot of questions for me. I wasn't entirely settled in my own mind until I got to verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 specifically For Adam was formed first, then Eve. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. For Paul and for us, this is the only reasoning that we need. We're not out of date or out of line when we assert that women are not to teach a man or exercise authority over a man within the confines of the local church. We're not out of line. We are in line with our creator and his purpose. The discussion essentially comes down to cultural order versus created order, or to put it more personally, it's cultural order versus the creator's order. Do you see the difference? What we're talking about? For the same reason, stick with me here, for the same exact reason that we believe marriage is between man and woman, What God decided in Genesis 1 and 2, we believe that men and women have different roles in the church. It all goes back to the creation, the creator's order of things. It may not reflect cultural order, and boy, this, well, culture is getting further and further away from this. It it just is. The church, in, in a lot of sectors, is getting further and further away from this. What's well, outdated? I don't like what that says. No, that's not, uh, I know what it says, but that's not how we're going to do it. My parents' home church split years ago when I was at college, as if my being there could have done something to change it. No. Um, my parents' church split because one of the elders pointed at the pastor and said, Don't you go throwing that Bible at me. I do not care what it says. And so my parents and a bunch of other people said, okay, and they left, and rightly so. We are getting further and further away from what this has to say. It may not reflect cultural order, the women's liberation and feminism of the last generation, and don't blame everything on this generation. (laughs) It started years ago. The women's liberation and feminism of the last generation, the belief of gender fluidity of today, this doesn't reflect the cultural order, but it, it is reflective of the creator's intentional design and order. And the created order, the creator's design has to be more important to us. 
At least it should be. Please note, in this discussion, men and women are created with equal dignity, equal significance, equal importance. Make no mistake about this. Men and women are equally valuable before God. They're created in his image, men and women both. The Apostle Peter writes in in his letters, he says, both men and women are co-heirs of the grace of God. So to demean men or women is to sin against God. And that's not at all what Paul is doing. 1 Timothy 2 has nothing to do with the value of women versus men, but it does speak about the roles of women and the roles of men. God created men and women with complementary roles. Some say that this is a result of the fall. Uh, After Adam and Eve sinned, then no. God created this before there was sin. This is not something that happened post-sin. This is God's good and gracious purpose from before he spoke the world into existence. Men and women are different and distinct in their respective roles. They are helpmates. Man created with a role that complements woman, and woman created with a role that complements man. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We need one another, not to do the same thing, but to do complementary things. God has given men and women distinct roles, both at home and within the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. As Alistair Begg puts it, women are better than men at being women. Men are better than women at being men. Yes? It's clear from this text and from what Paul writes in chapter 3 that that women, the role that they have been entrusted with in the church, women should not teach as pastors and elders and overseers. Women are not to teach or to exercise authority over men. So says the word of God. But, listen, there are men who don't meet the biblical gifting or biblical qualifications to be pastors or elders or overseers either. It's not that Paul's not saying men are in and women are out. Men do whatever you want, women shut up. He's not saying anything like that. He's not. It's not that men are in and women are out. No, Only a select few men are called and equipped to be elders, to be the teachers and the leaders of the local congregation. How we handle the truth of this passage, how we deal with this, matters. We submit ourselves, every part of ourselves, to God's word and to God's design, trusting that he knows better than us. Do you think maybe that's true? That he knows better than we do? Ours is a joyful submission, a joyful submission, not an angry or begrudging submission. Our working within God's design speaks a better story, speaks a better story, maybe not a more culturally acceptable story, but it is better. It speaks of submission to God's word and to God's authority, and that's a story worth telling. That's a story that will stand out from the culture of today. It's a story that will shock and surprise. You're telling me that women can't be pastors in your church? There's no women elders in your church? No? Let me tell you why. 
because we believe what God's word has to say on this. We believe that God's creation is good and that he created man and women to complement one another, to help one another, and to serve distinctly. Boy, it's different, and boy, is it offensive, and I know that. It can be. The men God has called to lead and shepherd this flock do so with an attitude of joyful, humble service. With the realization that that we are no more important or crucial to God's plan than anyone else. The women of this flock are gifted to serve and to teach under the direction of the elders, to make disciples, to pray, to minister in their proper God-honoring roles. We don't want you to be silent. We want all of us to work within God's design for his church. Is that okay to say? Are you mad at me? Are you lying to me? There are distinctive roles in the church reflective of the created order. We church, we church, are to be countercultural in many ways. We are. We're, we're, we're just to be different. People are to look at us and say, hmm, that, that's different. It's a little weird. What's up with them? We're to be countercultural. In many ways, and this is one of them. We do this in order to show the surpassing worth and value of knowing Jesus Christ. Serving him in the way that he sees fit. Not in whatever way makes things easier for us or makes us more comfortable. We serve him, we recognize his authority and the timeless authority of his word. We're different. Can, can we all just... You're different. We're to be aliens and strangers in this world, different. We're to be set apart. We're to be holy. And in this way, as we worship him according to his plan, we preach a good gospel, that men and women are saved through Jesus' death, that sin has disordered this world we live in. Satan has distorted God's design for manhood and womanhood. He's distorted God's design for our marriages, for our families. He's distorted God's design for the church and the culture, but Christ has come. He has conquered sin and death and Satan. Jesus died to make us the men and the women that God created us to be, and he's making all things new. And one day, Jesus will return and take us to a garden even better than Eden. In the meantime, we long to be what he would have us to be, men and women boys and girls, who give him praise, for he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word.
Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all. Heroes, photoshopped, all sides, heroes, a light, not expect.